out. Get rid of that frown that's been dragging you down and get up in the air. Just pretend that you can fly. You'll never know if you can till you try. Hi, and welcome to Cannabis Helps Dementia. I'm Chella. I'm Dave. And right up front, we'd like to say that we're not doctors or medical professionals, and nothing you hear in this podcast should be considered medical advice. Right. We're not experts, but throughout this podcast series, you'll hear from doctors, nurses, research scientists, administrators, other caregivers, and people living with dementia about how cannabis helps. Like it did for our family. That's right. After my mom was diagnosed with dementia, we were thrust into family caregiving and became fierce advocates for people living with dementia. Including their access to cannabis medicine. Today, we welcome back Dr. Melanie Bone. We spoke with her in the 2020 season, and we're thrilled to connect with her again for an update. Dr. Bone is a board-certified OBGYN with 30 years of experience in women's health care. She started a medical cannabis practice in 2016, treating adults and children. Dr. Bone has a unique background as a cancer survivor, a mother of five children, public speaker, and a women's health care advocate. Educating others is key to Dr. Bone's belief about empowering patients in their own care. We're totally aligned in our advocating for increased education around the possibilities of medical cannabis. In April of 2019, Morse Life Health System became the only senior community in Florida to have an approved medical cannabis program. Dr. Bone is the medical director of the Cannabinoid Initiative there. Morse Life is an over 65 residential community with a teaching nursing home, memory care unit, hospice, and rehabilitation facility on site. It's really amazing. We're so happy to welcome back Dr. Bone. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here and share with you updates on dementia care and cannabis at Morse Life. Also, let's talk about those people. Um, how are the people doing in the uh, independent living who can get the full advantage of the program? Yeah, so really interesting. We saw a huge drop in use and engagement during during COVID, which is kind of the reverse of what everybody else tells me. Yeah. Very interesting. So either they were so petrified, they couldn't, wouldn't, which is a distinct possibility. We also couldn't get it into them and they couldn't leave. So that was another issue for the total drop in use. Oh. Right. But they couldn't get out and we couldn't get it into them. And I think that probably underlies most of the decrease in use. Right, right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, um, but now picking up again, you know, and we just finished a four video series, which is kind of exciting that ooh. we're going to use on the Morse site. I don't think it's up quite yet, but we, we filmed it not too long ago and we took four vignettes of people from a, an 80 year old woman who just uses her CBD for MS and doesn't have any THC, doesn't want THC. She's a retired doctor, she, and, right? And then we have all the way up to my buddy who was um, basically in World War II and has a cancer on his leg and is 90 something years old and, and was anti and now does full on uh, THC tinctures and he's not impaired and he can, he's writing a book and he can write his book and his life is much better. So, awesome. and then, have we yeah we have four vignettes of people who use and it's very inspiring and I think it will set more support as a place where people want to come who want to have a, a nice cannabis system in place. Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. That's great. Um, the uh, speaking of doctors and the system and ideas around that. Uh, the nursing students at Morse Life, how are they doing? Are they learning about the endocannabinoid system? Are they surprised how effective cannabis medicine is? So here's the thing. Again, setback during COVID, what else is new? But but I will tell you, kind of the push ahead too, so out of every bad comes good, is I'm now, I was appointed uh, a clinic clinical affiliate assistant professor at FAU Medical School. So I'm excited because we're moving forward and we're going to get medical students and residents. And we're actually about to uh, launch, you know, I'm working with the curriculum developer to do at least a one week rotation. I mean, these poor kids have to be exposed to everything. So mm -hmm. I said, give me a week. I'm still thrilled with that, where mm -hmm. we'll do basic education and then we'll do clinical with me and then they'll happen 
maybe be with a pediatric cannabis person and then do rounds here and get a back back tour of a dispensary and how it works. So that's very exciting. Really? We, yes. yeah, we overwhelmingly now that everybody's kind of back and stable, we're starting again, more educational seminars. And I'm finding that as much the nursing students, which over COVID we didn't have them, but but as much with um, the caregivers, right? So we're, we're pushing harder and harder on caregivers because at the end of the day, they are the people that spend the most time mm-hmm. with these folks, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in fact, we just finished our inaugural caregiver certification class at Morse. So these are all things that we've been developing behind the scenes. Very exciting for me. Um, we had a didactic portion and then we tested them and um, I'm praying and hoping that at this Morse Life where I work, you know, for instance, if they take a Holocaust certification class, they can get a little pay boost uh, for being a specialist because there are a lot of Holocaust survivors here. Absolutely. And so we're trying to get them to entertain a little pay bump for the extra certification of being a certified cannabis caregiver. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. These are really, really wonderful progress. Amazing. For, for the challenges of COVID, I look back and I say, you know, we really have accomplished more. I, I was kind of personally a little down and out because I thought, oh, well, I'll have 150 patients by the next time I speak to Chella. Mm-hmm. But it, it didn't happen that way. And I, I do believe it's because we were so locked down. Mm-hmm. What also is happening, another exciting thing is that we're now expanding our services to the palliative care folks. Excellent. So it's what's excellent about that is they are outside of the four walls, but they are right. They participate mm-hmm. and they are very complicated medically, yeah. but they offer such an opportunity to help people with Mm -hmm. everything from mild cognitive changes to, I wouldn't say terminal cancer, but stable stage four cancer or impending uh, need for hospice. And we do, we're starting another thing with hospice as well. Uh, I'm trying to get the Delta eight for the moment um, because they all have dronabinol offered to them in in hospice, but um, we're trying to find maybe other administration routes that might be easier for them than trying to get them to swallow a pill. And Mm. I've got some ideas. So we're, we're trying to make something work better. The problem with hospice is the length of stay is quite short for Mm. a hospice here. And I Mm. wish it would be longer. So we would have more time to interact with the patients. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But palliative care, I think is opening up a lot of doors for us. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, it's, that would be really wonderful. I, I look forward to our next talk also. It's always nice to hear this progress. I know it may not be everything that we want it to be, but this, what you're doing, this is really good stuff that you're actually teaching at a school. So people are going to start learning this in school is a big deal because only 10, maybe before your, your university, but 10 schools in the whole U.S. teach about uh, the endocannabinoid system. And I think that that's, I think that's malpractice. If I have a system in my body and the doctor doesn't know about it, this is a problem. It is a problem. You know, but I, I have to tell you, I have a daughter who graduated college and then decided she wanted to go to medical school. Hmm. So she just this week finished her post-baccalaureate pre-med program. It's a one year, incredibly hmm. intensive. You do every basic science along hmm with all of your training to prep for the MCAT all in one year. Mm, and they mm. had to do it virtually. It, it was horrible. Mm, mm. But having said that, she actually did learn about the endocannabinoid system. Yes. That's awesome. And this is a back pre-med, not medical school, but yeah. So I, I was really impressed. And it was really this nice to be able to my own child about the endocannabinoid yeah. just, you know, her even just is the other end of the world children with developmental issues and cannabis, but I think that's where she's headed, you know? Awesome. That's great. Yeah.
Um, so um, back up a little bit to the uh, Florida caregiver program. I know that that was an issue previously. Have, has the caregiver dispensation worked out? Is there one nurse able to care for several patients? Like that cannabis fairy we chatted about last time? Yeah, we still haven't gotten, we still haven't figured out our way through that. You know, this session in the legislature mm -hmm. was focused virtually 100% on the issue of THC caps, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. But that was what we were facing was, um, this big movement to cap THC at 10%. How do you feel and, about that? Uh, I really don't think that the government should be able to tell me what I should do to practice medicine. And uh, from that standpoint alone, I'm opposed to it. Um, yeah, you. every person's an individual and every endocannabinoid system works slightly different than the next person's endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. And while one person may need 4%, another person may need 24%. Mm -hmm. And how can the government agency judge that when at this moment, we still don't even have to, a way to measure it to maybe prove that it's completely medically logical. It's like, why do you need, you know, 0.5 milligrams of drug and somebody else needs 20 to get the job done. You don't say that they're right. Thyroid, you wouldn't say, well, that person just is taking way too much thyroid to keep <laughs> their normal, right? Yeah. We should, we should bag the amount of thyroid and cap it. So anyway, we were successful in having that not addressed, but the sacrifice was other issues that we really wanted to get in there. Something so basic as continuing doing telemedicine for recertifications, we can't even get that in front of them because they only will take up so much per session. So to me, that's very important for seniors as well, because Certainly. I can engage with you through telemedicine, I think just as effectively and sometimes more effectively because you didn't have to get dressed and rush to get to my office. And now you got so anxious, you forgot where you put the note. And, and one of the best things about doing telemedicine with a senior in their home is when I say, well, what are, what are you taking? And they can't remember. I say, why don't you go get it for me and show it, hold it up in front of the camera. Yeah. And something that basic is such a benefit of telemedicine. So we're just hoping that we could get telemedicine more than the next like 55 days, but it doesn't, we don't know because DeSantis signed for 60, but not past that at the moment. Right, right. He seems rather open-minded compared to others about cannabis. DeSantis. He is open-minded and and then that's a plus. And so it's really interesting because some of the um, lawmakers seem way more conservative. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was under the impression that even if they somehow voted through a cap, he might veto it, but you mm -hmm. never know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You just never know. Did, uh, did that survey ever go out to the 40,000 households and did anybody uh, opt in? So interestingly, um, it got morphed <laughs> and uh, I'll, a large company, and I, I can't share who they are, did a good portion of that work for us. And so what we did was we, in my private practice and Morse, I took everybody over the age of 65 and I, we did our own study to compare with what this um, outsourced study looking at. So they ended up getting, I think, 400 people to participate total. Um, and at the end of the day, we had about maybe 56 total that I was able to get to participate. Um, and the funny part was we came up with pretty much the same findings, which is actually nuts. That's what it's supposed to be. And what we found was it, what I fully expected to find that there are many people who have issues like sleep and anxiety and, um, they need the help of something more than what they have, that cannabinoids are helpful for many of these issues, but not in everybody. And after that, um, we did see a few people who loved the product so much, they just kept, they still 
to this day, they're asking me for more and more, which is good. Mm -hmm. And then we saw a drop off from some percentage of people who um, weren't really 100% sure. And it, it reflects my practice with non-seniors. And it reflects, I think, most of my friends who are cannabis practitioners, which is, you know, some people just want to try to try. And I think one of the hardest things with CBD in particular is to get them to try it for long enough to see a nice benefit. Because when they take an Advil for chronic pain, they'll feel that in an hour, they'll feel better. Mm -hmm. But I tell them that if you want to use a natural product, it may take longer and more continuous use to get the inflammation under control, get your endocannabinoid system balanced. And I think some of them are not patient enough because it's easier to pop an Advil or a half a Percocet or whatever mm -hmm. it is you're going to pop. Mm -hmm. um, I find that when people are using cannabis for anxiety, insomnia, and in, in CBD in particular for this group, they do see results faster and therefore they're more willing to stay at it. I think chronic pain for me is one of the hardest ones to, to get it to keep going for a long time. Do you, for, for those people who are trying to manage chronic pain, are they using a CBD THC combination or just trying to work with CBD? So remember, this was just oh, about- Oh, sorry, inside study. the walls. I, but, but yeah, but you're right. Uh, there's no question you need the THC for chronic pain. And for some with anxiety that's high enough, it'll be a hard stop. And some of them going through the process of getting their card and getting to a dispensary, that's a hard stop. It's too much on them. And that's part of the whole system problem. I mean, it's systemic. If you make it too hard for people and you make it much easier for them to just go and hand their prescription in and pay their copay, it's going to be hard to get them to adopt it, right? It's totally disincentivized. Cash? Who has cash? I mean, come on, that's insane. Do you have an ATM machine in the middle of the in the um, lobby? Well, on occasion, I have been known to be available an ATM machine when a, somebody orders a product and they go, oh, I forgot to get my money for them. And I say, okay, what do you need? I need $40. Okay, so here's your $40. You owe me $40. I mean, yeah. I can't keep doing that on occasion. I mean, I do it out of the goodness of my heart. It's not a great thing to do but they're not gonna install an ATM just for those patients. And yeah. if we could get safe banking through, yes, we have the answer to our problem because they all have a credit card or a checkbook or whatever, right? Yes, safe banking and, is essential. And is why essential. is that just not going through? I mean, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But let um, me ask a question. I mean, <laughs> Everyone was very optimistic that when the Democrats took over the White House, that, that we would be looking at quick legalization. But I don't think so. I was not optimistic. I'm not. I'm not no. I, I don't the person in the White House, bless his heart, is a prohibitionist. Correct. And the vice president is an opportunist. So <laughs> she'll go wherever the winds blow. And right now, her boss says no. And in that case, she will say no. So the only person that was going to possibly change everything did not win the primary. So we'll have to uh, try some other way. I think we just need to keep educating and keep letting people know. Um, so if do you know any people outside the walls who mm -hmm. might be able to benefit from, say, a low-dose one-to-one product to see how that can help them with oh, the, massively. memory? Oh, yeah, massively. I mean, it's a... I have a relative who um, I see starting to have memory loss. And um, it's funny, he's a staunch Republican. And I said, let's try you on some CBD. I got nowhere, but he's a perfect example of someone, a brilliant guy, lawyer. I would love to see him get back uh, to himself by starting some of of these things. So I'm trying to gently keep pushing on it. In my regular private practice, I, I, I just saw a lady yesterday for mild um, Alzheimer's and some other issues together. And, and she does uh, like a five to one for mm -hmm. her. 
that's her sweet spot. If she gets to one-to-one, she gets high and she's not happy. Sure, sure. How much of the five-to-one does she need to help her with her symptoms? Not much. I mean, she, she'll do like a tincture after breakfast and dinner, and she has a vape as a just-in-case in between. So like, you know, five milligrams? Yeah, five to ten. Yeah, five to 10 milligrams twice a day and, and vaping. I mean, I would say it's so funny because we have all these arguments about capping dosage, mm. daily dosage. When you're using medical cannabis in this age group, I don't think people go over 20 to 40 milligrams a day on average. They just don't. And, and yet, you know, we're hearing pushback. I want at least 500 milligrams a day. And I'm thinking, first of all, that'll break your bank, but <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> but I mean, I don't judge on it, but mm-hmm. I, it's, it's one of those things that lawmakers look at us and, and, and it's, it's a hard thing to know what to judge because the lawmakers say, well, look, you're going down the same path as the pill mill when it was unlimited amounts of pain medicine to help pills. And now it's unlimited amount of cannabis to help whatever the problem is. And so I sort of see it from both sides, because I understand, I don't want the government to get between me and my patient. But I understand the government saying, see what all these doctors do. They they just are trying to be somebody's legal dealer. And so you end up like saying, I get both sides of the equation. I really do. But there's got to be some sweet spot in the middle where we could all compromise and be happy. But I don't know. Well, they're, they're also comparing apples and oranges. Opioids and those pills kill people when you take too much. And cannabis doesn't kill anybody and it never has. So, well, we bring that up always as an argument. And then, you know, there are counter arguments. Well, this one took THC and then fell off a building. So it indirectly did kill them, right? Okay, so there's that, which we say alcohol does the same thing, right? I mean, we can. 92,000 people a year die from alcohol and it's still very much legal. Exactly, exactly. It is so much safer cannabis than alcohol. But, but I think the, the construct of people who go into lawmaking is more rigid than the construct of people who go into cannabis care. So we are harm reductionists by nature and, and caregiver personalities and lawmakers are justice and, and being accountable, right? Control. And that's where, that's where you end up, you know, the two just, but yeah. But, this uh, back to POTUS though, he did just recently say that he really wants novel treatments for Alzheimer's disease. Yes. Maybe we can, um, you know, lobby him on this front that, uh, that cannabis is an opportunity to have novel treatments for Alzheimer's disease, but it has to be descheduled. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. I just want to be careful that when we Either he, I think he. Somebody said something about schedule two. The problem with moving it is that you know who's going to be in charge of it in about five minutes. So you got to come up with a, a way to make it ease more easily available, but not controlled by someone who's going to turn it into just a compressed hard pill like dronabinol, and you get. One milligram, two milligrams, five milligrams, 10 milligrams, and that's it. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that cannabis has that opportunity. I don't mind if big pharma wants to take a swing at it, but I do feel that all the way through the whole spectrum, neighbors should be able to grow it and exchange with their friends just like they grow tomatoes. Craft cannabis makers should be able to make supplements and craft cannabis for people who want. Obviously, it all needs to be uh, safe and um, not contaminated with uh, pesticides or mold or anything like that. We all agree there. But I do feel that this is a complex plant and it needs complex regulation. And other things are coming up as well. Psilocybin, other plants. Maybe we need a whole new department that deals with Yeah, I agree. Novel, novel interventions that are psychoactive. I agree. They're plant-based, that are from nature, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree 100%. And I think there's no question that if we were having this conversation 10 years from now, 
can't, it might not be cannabis helps dementia. It's going to be psychedelics help dementia. Or... LSD helps dementia or mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, no, and it's more about opening parts of your brain to take care of you while other parts of your brain can't do it anymore, as opposed to just trying to undo damage to the parts of brains that were already in existence. Yeah. 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 And of course, prevention, like we were talking about earlier, I mean, there's more and more evidence coming up now that uh, I think we recently read that 40% of Alzheimer's could be pre prevented. So we need to have more education publicly and in the whole, you know, whole of the world. Because right now, if you say that your loved one has dementia or has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it's a one-way ticket, you know, and... Absolutely. And, and, you know, you were talking before about dietary interventions. And so it brings back even to the whole thing. You know, I remember writing a column on cancer and diet and we were saying, oh, so much of cancer could be prevented by a diet with fruits and vegetables and, and, and good quality nutrients and not smoking. And those interventions alone could take away a lot of cancer. Mm -hmm. And then, but it's a really it's a socioeconomic problem at the, the same time, right? Because if, if you're barely earning minimum wage, you can't afford super good quality nutrients necessarily. And, and for cancer, that's always been the case because um, to get that, you know, you're, you're doing this with your head, but, I'm going but like compare, this, the yeah. cost, compare the cost of a, a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese to what goes into a good fruit salad or vegetable salad. One head of lettuce is going to cost you $3.99 or $2.99. This is 55 cents or a dollar a box. Mm -hmm. So you can feed yourself for three meals, but it, it doesn't have the nutritional value of doing healthy. If there were a way we could get healthy fruits, vegetables into the hands of people that don't have a lot of disposable income and even so when they go to shop, where do they shop and what's the cost and how good are those things? And it's interesting if you look at the way even medical school is looking at disease now, they look at it in the socio-cultural and economic framework. So where's diabetes most rampant? Maybe not in the highly educated, you know, neurotic doctors like Melanie Bone, who's out there mm -hmm. exercising. I don't want to gain weight and get type two diabetes. And, but that's so different than somebody who works um, a job from seven to five and maybe has a second job and just doesn't have the time in the day to get all that, doesn't have the money to get all that, doesn't have the wherewithal. So, and the other thing is, you know, culturally, this group of people loves a good old barbecue every single weekend, right? That's mm -hmm their social and uh, way of interacting. And then they bring along alcohol and all that. And you say, well, now we just want you to stop eating meat and we don't want you to drink alcohol. Use it, cannabis instead. If you want that feeling of euphoria. Right. Well, and I don't think we can make substitutions and changes that would make things better. And I do wish that doctors would talk more about what is available and what can be done because that socioeconomic, I'm glad they're looking at that and that's awesome, but they should talk more about the value of vegetables and also not eating as much. Like, right. I think that, but I don't, I think you're not giving them enough credit. I think they do. I don't, I, but you know, they see 40 people a day and maybe it falls on deaf ears when, I mean, you say to somebody whose idea of breakfast is go to McDonald's and then lunch, maybe uh, Wendy's and then dinner, maybe, you know, some fried chicken at home. Okay, that's not an unusual meal. My, I have relatives who eat that, okay? And you say, no, 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 you should, you know, have for the morning, let's get you some nice oatmeal with fruits. And they're like, hey, you can tell them that, but whether the person is gonna take it in and really do major changes, is hard. So I think where you have to start, believe it or not, is the whole other end of the spectrum. you got to start teaching from the time they're three years old on up. And instead of pushing, I mean, listen, I was raised on goldfish, okay? I oh. mean, my parents didn't know I was raised learning where my food came from. <laughs> oh, well, very different, you know? 
have these or have these snacks. And I, what I love now is I see these mothers taking out little cauliflower balls and mm-hmm. kale things. And so I think that over time, revamping that is going to have a huge impact when those people are then 80 years old on their brain function and for the sure. benefit. Absolutely. Yeah, I, absolutely. I would love to see a great diminution in dementia over the next, you know, decade, 10 decades, century. Yeah. Well, if, if we keep, su- if we keep subsidizing sugar and wheat and corn and soy with our tax dollars, it keeps it super duper cheap. So that's part of the big problem. If we stop subsidizing foods that kill people and keep them sick, maybe we subsidize vegetables, but you know, broccoli doesn't have a lobby, you know, not really. (laughs) I love that. I'm never going to forget that. Broccoli doesn't have a lobby. (laughs) And, and there's no question. It's, it's from the very ground level of what we grow, how we sell it, you know, where we sell. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no question that improving the basic health of people before they reach the age of dementia should secondarily improve their chances of getting to the end of their life without dementia. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm banking on it actually. Um, about reducing polypharmacy. Are you seeing any reports of patients using fewer opiates, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, or sleep medications when they're starting to use cannabis? Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's what keeps me going when the going gets tough is the great outcomes we see. So uh, I had a woman come in a little while ago and she goes, I don't take very much clonopin. Let's see. I take two in the morning, two in the middle of the day and two at night. And I said, oh, "Oh, okay. You know, you don't want to make these people feel bad. I go, I don't think that's as little as you think that is. But, and we always, you know, say, let's start and then we'll see what happens. And they go, aren't you going to give me a weaning schedule? That's classically because in traditional paternalistic medicine, Mm -hmm. you're given day three, take this much, day four, do this, day five. And, and, I want it to be maybe a little organic. I can always give them a weaning schedule at the follow-up visit, right? I don't want them overwhelmed with the to-dos initially. And uh, what happens is almost universally, these people come back and and within a pretty much a very short period of time, a month or two, they've decreased their uh, clonopin by about 50%. Nice. And I, I think that's fabulous. And I yeah. say, listen, we can slowly keep going in that direction, but we see the greatest reduction in benzodiazepines, sleepers, and opioids in the first probably three months that they use cannabis. After, and it's usually at least 50%. Mm. And then very interesting, after that, it slows down, mm. but a lot of it depends on how motivated they are. Mm-hmm. But this is something I recently read, which kind of surprised me. It was a study on pain, opioids, and cannabis together. Mm-hmm. And our thought is it's kind of a replacement drug. You, you use the cannabis and then you can pull away the opiates. So they did some really interesting studies. I can't remember where I read this, but I'll remember at some point, um, where there was a distinct subset of patients that was able to go down and off. There was a distinct subset who got to a point where if they tried to go farther, their cannabis did not work well enough. They mm-hmm. it actually everything worked better together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was a very small subset of patients where the cannabis caused more pain and it was it was very detrimental and it, it caused them to increase their opioid use. So the one thing is to look at that subset of patients and mm-hmm. say, can we identify anything about that subset so we know before we start who might not do well with this combination? Because I think part of it is that psychological, I'm a fail, I didn't do well at this, right? Mm-hmm. In addition to the fact I don't feel well. Mm-hmm. And, and if there were a way to figure out who were the patients who were pretty much, you could guarantee they were going to get to where they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And for whom you had to really impress upon them that 
maybe they're not going to get all the way off and that's okay. And mm -hmm. I find that that's what I do now with everybody. Mm -hmm. I find it's very important to not make opioids always out to be the bad guys, mm -hmm. but to say they have a role. Sure. Maybe their role is never going to be part of your life anymore, or maybe you will live in tandem, but hopefully at a greatly reduced dose. And if we find that when you start cannabis, your need for opioids goes up, we need to address that and figure out what's better for you to yeah. continue or to maybe can say for you, this is not a good combo. It'd be interesting. I wish we had like machines and things that could measure people's endocannabinoid system better. Because I wonder if there's any correlation there. If somebody who has X type of endocannabinoid system has that reaction, it'd be very interesting. I think the future is going to be cool. Yes, we need to characterize it better. Um, you know, I, as a gynecologist with 30 years experience, this is what I know. And it's a problem I can even sort of foresee in the future, even if we had an ability to measure it. And I'll tell you why. You know, we give people estrogen for hot flashes, right? Now, there's no correlation often between their blood levels and how they feel. I mean, there isn't a number of people, but I'll give you an example. I have some people, they come in and let's say their estrogen level is 10 and you bring their estrogen level to 15 and by the way, anything under 30 is considered menopause. So you've gone from like no estrogen to, mm -hmm. and they come back, they say, I feel great. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, but your levels are like so low. Yeah. And then if you keep pushing it just to drive a level to a normal level, right. they don't feel any better. In fact, often you get to a point where they feel much worse. Right. And then on the other hand, there are people that have hot flashes, hot flashes, and you measure their level and it's like a 20 year old. Mm, interesting. And you go, but I'm giving you enough estrogen to put you back at a 20 year old. So mm -hmm. does that mean your hot flashes are not caused by menopause? Does that mean you have a unique system that's not processing estrogen the same way? So the same sort of goes for me for the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. Maybe pretty soon we'll be able to measure absolute levels of parts of it. Mm -hmm. But it's, I'm sure, so incredibly complex that yeah. I, I don't know that getting that ability is going to be the definitive answer. It would be great if it were. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like more of a paradigm, like you're talking about, of, of working with people organically and more of a functional medicine paradigm is sort of what this type of medicine needs to fold into to be effective. I, you know, it's interesting. I agree because I think... Unlike thyroid, you measure, are your thyroid levels in the normal range, out of the normal range? We're putting them back into the normal range. Um, I don't think that we're gonna have that paradigm or structure for practicing cannabis medicine because mind-body interaction is so important and that's not measurable. And as you well know, what people eat, drink, their fatigue state, how much exercise they're doing, all those things figure into what their cannabis needs are. And because all and those things change your endocannabinoid system. Absolutely. And that's kind of the art of cannabis medicine. Mm -hmm. And and any medicine that uses a lot of art it attracts a certain type of practitioner. Mm -hmm. Because it's like the gray zone. You know yes. what I mean? Whereas yes. surgery probably wouldn't be too interested in that because they like to have a problem and they're great at it they fix it and then right 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 um so uh let's talk about raw cannabinoids a little bit mm. um have you started trying any raw cannabinoids in tea for patients like a little bud into their tea yeah, how's that working wouldn't that be wouldn't that be great well, not in the who, walls i know yeah so who can get it right yeah. So in this state, interestingly, you have to consent someone separately to be able to get flower, mm. right? So their consent form initially is for inhalation, but that would be an oil, uh -huh. not flower, okay? Now, how they get around it, eventually they came out, you know, they got little small flower vapes, right? Mm. And now, it's, it's easier than it was 
but you still have to bring the patient back for second consent and then um, send a letter to the state and then they can get flower. So probably not the adoption that most people would like because mm -hmm. of those steps. The other thing that I don't know if you would have it out West, but we have it here. One of, I see that the hard part about flower with these people is it's kind of like sometimes a vintage wine. You come upon it, it's excellent. Mm -hmm. You go back to the store, they go, sorry, that's gone. Now we have bloody black. Mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of challenging because people want their medicine to kind of be their medicine. Mm -hmm. And they get frustrated when they go back and they go, well, what am I going to do now? And in fact, uh, people will say to me, well, what dispensary carries this yeah. drain? And I say, I don't have that menu because that menu changes quite frequently. Yes. So we're still kind of challenged, but I think it is really, really a neat idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what about, because hemp is legal, um, what about using hemp, raw hemp, to get some of those raw acid cannabinoids? So that's so funny you say that. That's a, absolutely a project I'm working on with my child. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I, oh, I can't wait till I can tell you about it more. Oh, but, shoot, okay. But we're all on it. And Great. I definitely think that is a big future. Excellent. And, Excellent. and I think, don't underestimate the power of the raw. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, well, Dr. Uh, Russo, uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, um, world-renowned neurologist and cannabis researcher, says that the raw acid forms are far more powerful medicinally than the neutral forms, except it's so hard to study unless they're the synthetic version that they're coming up with in Israel now. I know, exactly, exactly. I wish... It, Years ago, this is my child, Carlton, who lives in, in Oregon, was saying, Mom, this is where it's at. He's right. He's right. I, so I think so. But next time, I think we will have more on that because I cool. think we're able to implement some of this. Yeah. Excellent. I look forward to hearing more. Um, hey, let's circle back and talk about menopausal women. Sure. Because, um, you know. It's a favorite subject of mine as well. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, so studies indicate that hormonal imbalances contribute to women's increased risk for dementia. How do you think that cannabis uh, might help women navigate the menopausal years? Very good question. So in terms of dementia or in terms of menopause symptoms? So I would start with menopause symptoms and then later on in life becoming... Right. So menopause is interesting because there's the concept that the decrease in hormones or the fluctuation in hormones, as much as the absolute value of the hormones, um, is implicated in some of the things like hot flashes, flushes, night sweats. So there's the physical component, we call them the vasomotor symptoms, right? Hot flashes, flushes, night sweats. There's the vulvovaginal atrophy, which is the dryness of the genital tissues, the bladder, the vagina. There's the emotional component, this emotional psychological component, depression, anxiety, um, very common at the time of menopause, all right? So if you ask me about cannabis, so while your levels are still fluctuating, I think cannabis can help in a couple of different ways. One is because it tends to stabilize things I think people don't feel those great fluctuations quite as much. But once you get to the point where the absolute level is down, um, I would say that I don't think we have data to really prove that cannabis itself will mitigate hot, hot flashes, flushes, night sweats, vasomotor symptoms based on being a phytoestrogen that's strong enough to do that or... Um, an estrogen substitute. But what I do find is that it's more of a sub, it's not a substitution. It's more of taking the secondary triggers and mitigating them. So what I mean by that is if you ask most women, when do you get a hot flash? Okay, I'm stopped at a light. 
and I need to put my lipstick on or I want to look in the rearview mirror, but the light might turn green and they get a mo- just a moment of a little bit of anxiety. It, it can be something as little as that. Mm-hmm. Boom, huge hot flash, yes. sweat, okay? That's where I think canvas is incredibly helpful because taking away some of the anxiety and the potency of those momentary panicky feelings will mitigate the vasomotor symptoms. So I use it a lot for those type of women. And the other thing is, let's be honest, sleep is bad when you're anxious and depressed. So I think getting women restorative sleep in the perimenopause and menopause helps to mitigate some of the vasomotor symptoms. And I love the compliment of of cannabis and estrogen. I feel like you can get away with much less estrogen. And um, because again, you're helping instead of just using estrogen as your anti-anxiety medicine, mm-hmm. now you have something else. So really all you really need to do is get rid of the hot flashes with the estrogen. And I find over and over again, it doesn't take that many if, if you institute lifestyle changes in addition, right? Mm-hmm. Don't drink that cup of hot coffee after you put your makeup on because <laughs> <laughs> your makeup's gonna float off your face. And you know, if you're going out to dinner, uh, red wine is just not, very good for menopause women. So if you're going to drink, believe it or not, maybe you drink vodka, but not with a lot of sugar because you don't, sugar can set you off too. Or you just make a spritzer and put in three ice cubes and you've diluted your drink down with, with water. I think alcohol is, is a big trigger. So we try lifestyle changes, the cannabis, and with cannabis, a lot of women go, I don't really even want my glass of wine anymore which is good because then they lose a little bit of weight and then some of their vasomotor symptoms are better. Uh So uh I I cannot think of a way that I think cannabis is detrimental in the perimenopause and menopause. Um, And I would say, if you believe in the neuroprotective effect of cannabinoids, well, cannabis should be very helpful to helping prevent some of those causes of dementia that we talked about that are reversible. Um, And that, that's dynamite. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, and you do have that, you know, you have this weird thing where some studies will show estrogen helps to prevent dementia. Mm-hmm. And there are studies out there that shows that estrogen may be in fact causative of dementia. Mm-hmm. It's always been a problem. And what is the rationale behind it? Is it microscopic blood clots and infarcts in the brain and you get some type of dementia related to that because estrogen can increase your clot risk or is it a direct effect? I I can't see how it would be a direct effect, but smarter people than me are looking into it. Let's hope that uh, somebody is looking into it. But um, so women going through menopause, these menopausal years, perimenopause and stuff, are you finding that they need very high doses of THC and CBD or do they also benefit from microdosing. Oh, I, I just love microdosing across the board, to be honest with you. <laughs> and with you. It, yeah, and there's definitely an interaction at the level of the brain between um, estrogen receptors and endocannabinoid receptors. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a doubt. Mm-hmm. So what happens is I think microdosing works incredibly well. Um, and often I find it works best in women. I don't know if I can say that across the board, but more men seem to be tolerant of more THC. This is kind of what I found. I do have mm-hmm. outliers all the way around, mm-hmm. but I think women love the idea of microdosing, not only because it doesn't impair them. They like to be in control. They have so much on their plate that they want to take away the anxiety, mm-hmm. take away the pain, take, and, and they do great with that. And they, um, and what's interesting is Later on in life, what I have found, and I I hesitate to say this out loud, but when I have like, I have this one patient here, she's almost a hundred years old Mm. and she just takes a lot of THC to get stoned or high. And what I find is interesting is I think because she lacks all estrogen, Uh she is more resistant to the impact. And I tell you, if you just look at the big picture, most common thing people will tell me, women middle-aged coming in. When I was 18, I went to a party, somebody gave me Hmm. a joint and I had rapid heartbeat and I got anxious and I got panicky. 
And I'm like, because your estrogen levels were like really high at age and you were way more sensitive to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And now as you get older and your estrogen levels go down, I think you may be less sensitive to it. Absolutely. That's absolutely a thing. That's definitely a thing. Um, that's awesome. And when we're talking microdosing, we're talking under five milligrams. Yeah. I often have people do, you know, the latest thing is I have them buy a 10 milligram gummy mm -hmm. and they literally cut it into eight pieces. Sure. And each Not piece an is easy feat. Well, they <laughs> do your best. Go half, half the halves, half the yeah. quarters. And you yeah. know what? I mean, even if they oops and they get a quarter, which is 2.5, they're usually pretty good. Sure. Yeah. That's great. I love yeah. it. Um, so let me ask you, do you consult outside of Florida? How can people reach you? Oh, so kind of you to ask. So actually, yes, I, um, I'm willing to take consults from anywhere in the country. Um, my office number is the best way to reach me is either go on email, which is hello at drmelaniebone.com. Or you can call, I have an RN that's been working me, with me for a long time and she's just wonderful, skilled in both hormones and cannabis now. Her name is Lisa and it's lisa at drmelaniebone.com and the telephone number is 561-706-0648. If you happen to work for a company that participates in a something called Second MD, it's, it's a consult system for people who want second consents and second opinions on things. I do second opinions for them often on cannabis for um, cancer treatments. And, and I like that part of what I do. And that's paid for by your company if you participate in that second MD. Yeah, that's great. That's an awesome thing. Um, is there anything you would like to talk about or bring up that we haven't covered yet? No, I think we've been very thorough. You're wonderful at this. And I'm really looking forward to next time having updates on all these things and, you know, moving the whole thing forward. Absolutely. Very good. Us too. Thank you so much for everything that you do, Dr. Bowen. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chella. Take care. Bye-bye. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for Cannabis Helps Dementia. Be sure to download, rate, and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting network. And please share this podcast with anyone you know in relationship with dementia. Do you want to tell your story of how cannabis helps dementia? Leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash cannabis helps dementia, or you can drop us a note or connect with us on the socials. Check out the Society of Cannabis Clinicians website to find real medical professionals familiar with cannabis medicine in your area or online. Because you remember, we're not doctors, just family caregivers turned advocates. And don't forget, download, like, and share what you learned. Cannabis helps dementia. Why don't you get wise? Get up and get out. Get rid of that frown that's been dragging you down. And get up in the air. Just pretend that you can fly. You'll never know if you can.